I might have to stand. I know I'm sitting right now, but I got really excited because my best friend in the whole world, Ryan Holiday. Yes, the writer that we've had on a few times. He's changed the way a lot of you people think. And I'm so excited that he's here. Sims is gone. I said, stay at home. I don't need you today. Ryan, how are you? I'm really good. This is a special Friday conversation. Okay. So it's you and me it's hanging Tuesday. out. Yeah, but we're so this is something I've seen you do on other podcasts, and I wonder if they were mad. You were on with Aubrey Marcus. Yeah, I recommend checking his stuff out too. And you you mentioned the Saints Falcons game. Okay, and I'm like, man, that was a long time ago. Yeah, this that's dude, true. This dude probably had this interview in the can. You love to say what time it is. Am I? You know dates. I do know. I, I sometimes I okay. never know what day it is usually, yeah. but yeah, I did well, reference that. That was an interesting game. It was an amazing game. And then Sean I Payton didn't. Re- so you are a big football fan, ish. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we introduced Ryan to you guys. It was two years ago. In case you didn't know, uh, when he had the book "Ego Is the Enemy." This is after I had my Quake book, as Ryan likes to call it. Obstacle is the way. Uh, Obstacle is the way was a book that was rapidly uh, adapted from the Patriots, the Seahawks. It spread all over the NFL. It preached stoicism, which you describe as. Uh, it's a, I'd say it's well, it's an ancient philosophy, but it basically says we don't control the world around us. We control how we respond, mm. which is uh, basically the attitude you have to have in sports. And coaches agreed with you. And mm-hmm. it, it took on a life of its own. Egos, the enemy was great. Uh, and then I got my hands probably about a year ago or however long ago was on Perennial Seller, which if you are looking to get into really any industry, but especially one if you're interested in writing, highly encourage. Perennial Seller is really asking the question, when something lasts for 100 years, did they set out for it to last 100 years, which I think was a very interesting question. And now we sit here today on the release day of your new book. I did not realize it was coming out today. Yes. Conspiracy. Yes. Are you is this another baby out there in the world for you? Yeah, yeah. This was you know eighteen months of uh, an eighteen month sprint basically about what I think is probably the most unreal, unbelievable news story of the twenty first century. A, a billionaire spends ten million dollars in ten years plotting the destruction of a media outlet that had thoughtlessly outed him and. Even though it's the most covered media story of of its time, nobody knew he was doing this because he was doing it completely in secret. And this is Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and somehow Gawker. it also involves Hulk Hogan. <laughs> it also I'm, involves Hulk Hogan and Donald Trump and uh, just about every the FBI. It's it's just incredible. I I'm going to be honest. I was I still sit with Perennial Seller. I came home and I found my girlfriend with her own copy of Perennial Seller taking notes. And she looked at me and she goes, the nuggets in this are ridiculous. And I, I asked you this when we were back in the green room area. 
you've written so much, you've collected so many great moments from great men and great people and great women in, in history, and you put them into these books, but this is in the current and it's in the now, and it was just such a good story that you said, and, and Peter Thiel wanted to talk to you, yeah. that you felt compelled to do it. I mean, if you swapped out the names, if it wasn't Peter Thiel, it was, um, you know, uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, or it wasn't Nick Denton, it was William Randolph Hearst, it would still make complete sense mm. and still feel like something that ha- like this is this is what robber barons do right they 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 go on these insane quests uh and, and it, you know it's actually in some ways it's the same story as the count of monte cristo and so it is this sort of timeless sort of epic journey of revenge and poetic justice but then it's somewhat shakespearean in that he gets teal succeeds he, you know, he he goes after this media outlet for uh, violating his privacy, and as a result of this conspiracy, becomes incredibly famous and deeply disliked uh, by by huge sections of the media. And so, to me, it, it fits in. This would be a story in one of my other books um, if it had happened two decades ago or two centuries ago. And so. Uh, I so I have a lot of questions for the book. I okay. want to get to that in a little bit. But first, I kind of want to catch up because I haven't talked to you in forever. Let's do it. Uh, two weeks ago, I am partying in L.A. Okay. At one of the biggest parties there. It was at 747 Warehouse. Downtown? At the American Apparel Factory? That's nuts. The Adidas had a $30 million party in the parking lot of what used to be American Apparel, where you worked. And I feel like it was a very interesting time. I just thought it was ironic. I looked up and I was like, Ryan would think this is funny. Well, that's pretty incredible because American Apparel was at one point a billion dollar company. uh, And then it sold after its second bankruptcy for $60 million. So Adidas could have bought 50% of American Apparel for the cost of this party. one party. Um, Yeah, I mean, that too is an almost Shakespearean historical sort of epic story of of uh, genius and passion and yeah. power and success, and then also catastrophic failure and comeuppance. Let me see if I can do this. Ryan Holiday drops out of school early, takes a $30,000 job, turns it into an actual job. Then was it PR for uh, American Apparel, or am I missing a step in there? Uh, I did some other things, but yeah, I was the director of marketing in American Apparel. And there was the, is it the owner or the creator, the founder of American Apparel? He basically did everything, yeah. It was his and thing. he was a crazy person. Well, yeah. Uh, oftentimes, really brilliant people are crazy. Mm. Or, or what made them brilliant and successful, if not contained, is also the seeds of their destruction. Sure. And that was certainly that story. I mean, uh, in some ways, he was responsible in every way for the company's success. And then every bit of the failure falls on him too you know i mean he was the the ceo the founder the chairman of the board or or whatever uh the majority shareholder the creative director the model for some of the clothes i mean like he just did everything and then uh you know then 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 the troubles started 
Yeah, it's funny. You were talking earlier about uh, what happened with Conspiracy, your book, and how it's that, that story. There's only a few stories, and everyone is a character is in their own version of one yeah. of the few heroes' journeys that are mm-hmm. out there. Uh, you had a lot of football reference. You had Nick Saban, Bill Belichick. You also had John Wooden in there in some of your older books. Uh, I'm going to go into Perennial Sailor really quick just to talk about Bill Walsh. Yeah. Um, and in there, you talked about him wanting to set up a near-permanent base camp near the summit. And I think, you know, as, as, as we talk about football all the time, we always wonder why are there some teams that can be really successful and sustain it and why not? And his philosophy was one that you could sustain it for a while, and he did. Well, it wasn't. It, it's not just the sustaining thing. I think people get overly focused on that. It's, it's that you have to be really, really good, and then you have to be ready to be lucky, right? So his argument was like, um, I'll give you an analogy. So this book, it comes out today. Uh, I've worked on it for 18 months. I think it's the best writing I've ever done. I think it's very you know, topical. It's got all sorts of stuff. It, it could pop and sell a million copies, or it could be tomorrow a, a hurricane could make landfall in some you know, first world country, right. and nobody cares anymore, right? And, or... Um, you know, uh, like for instance, Jay Z's. I think it was the Reasonable Doubt album. No, no, no. There was a Jay Z album that came out right after nine eleven. Yes, and it still sold, which is a testament to how great it was. But it all could have been for naught because of that. Yeah, and and it's it's just like, hey, this pitch goes to this person at this time, and they're at their desk first, not at their. Mm. There's so many like, and so what Bill Walsh was saying is is like the difference, especially in football, the difference between. A Super Bowl winning season and a non-Super Bowl winning season could be one call from one ref or one, you know, one crazy catch that's ruled a catch or not ruled a catch or, you know, uh, one freak injury or no freak injury or a freak injury on the other team. You know, so he was saying, he was like, look, we have to perform at this sort of level of excellence. And what's so interesting about football is basically it's like if you if if you have a 500 season then it's like you and the handful of other teams, and then anyone can win the Super Bowl. It's not, you know what I mean? The, yeah. the seeds aren't as important, right? And and then it's one game. You know, it's not like a series, right? right. So, so a a less good team can very easy, a wild card team can very easily uh, beat, uh, you know, beat and make it all the way to the Super Bowl. It doesn't happen super often, but right. it can. Unlike base, like in baseball, if you're not better than the other team, you're not going to win a, a seven game series. Exactly. It, it's we talk about this all the time in terms of looking at the NFL when we pick games. Anything can happen. It's the reason the phrase, it's an oddly shaped ball, it bounces weird ways, yeah. is, is popular, which I can't imagine as a coach how frustrating it is to seemingly have all the right seeds, and then it goes that opposite way, but that's what you play. Yeah, or I mean, even this Super Bowl, right? Tom Brady hurts his hand. Uh, what's his name? Does Malcolm Butler doesn't right. play. Why? We don't necessarily know. Um and the entire the entire game, and that's the entire Super Bowl hinges on like two tiny decisions, and so um, you know it, it's like somebody could write an amazing review of the book, and then it could get a bad headline, or it could get a good. So many micro things determine whether it's going to like explode, or whether it's going to be uh, you know a solid double, or whether it's going to be a strikeout. You know, and so th- that's. What, what Walsh was saying is you got to be really, really, really good, and you got to be good long enough to get lucky. I think what's interesting, too, that we try and explain to people about the NFL is 
not every coach works as hard as Bill Belichick. It's mm-hmm. not just about talent and him seeing things they're not seeing. Yeah. The effort's not there. Sure. And it's crazy to fans because you go with all this money and all this notoriety. How could you not give full effort? Is it unfair to expect that? Because, I mean, as we look at humans, the average of people that give full effort, it's got to be very, very low. But at the same time, I bet there's people who work harder than Bill Belichick but aren't as good, right? Mm. Like there's people who are, you know, uh, see their family less than Bill Belichick, right? Or are bigger assholes than Bill Belichick, but they don't win. So it's a combination of talent and work and working smarter rather. You know, it's it's all of these things. Um, But I do think what you see with whether it's the Spurs or the New England Patriots is that they build a system, a sort of a culture of excellence that allows them to be good constantly and then be in a position to succeed. Those were the two teams moments. that we talked about with Michelle Tafoya when she was on. And I've, I said this to Ryan back there. You guys have reached out to us the most about Michelle Tafoya and how cool she was. And you've gotten to know her really well. She's the best. And she takes that same mentality to her job. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, and I think people forget that journalists are uh, pursuing a craft and that there's mastery of that craft. And by the way, there's some people who are wit- who, who, who are just effortlessly amazing at that thing and other people who are not. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, I, I think any time you see a master of their craft, uh, it's impressive. And whether whether she's on the sidelines, it, you know, being a master of that craft or whether it's watching somebody throw a, a touchdown pass, which is also mastery. It, I think any time you see it, it's impressive. And like, you, I think you want to seek those people out and learn as much as you can from them. Human question. Okay. I imagine your entire life you've been the young kid that's just shocking people. Yeah. You're 30 yeah. and you have a kid. Uh-huh. Are you still that? So my, my first job in Hollywood, um, I worked for this movie producer who was this, he was like 25 or 26. And uh, I remember going, what's it like to be a movie producer? You're like 26. He had all these credits and it was really impressive. And... And he was like, it was really cool at first. And he's like, now I'm 26. And he's like, and my friends from college are graduating from medical school. And it's not as cool anymore. He, like, because like, so his thing didn't like require a ton of education. Right. So he got this head start. And then so it was really impressive. But then it, it evens out. And I think I'm at that part of my career where now I kind of like it because I didn't necessarily like being the young kid. And people didn't always take me seriously. But now it's like. Now it's just like the work is what matters. Right. Um, so and you have the catalog, too, to back it up. I, I mean, I hope so. But now it's just like – yeah, now you're just like a person. At 30, you're just like a person and you either like put up or shut up. But at like at 24, you know, as long as you're not an idiot hmm. – or as long as you don't – as long as when someone gives you an opportunity, you don't like horribly flame yes. out – People are impressed. Yeah, they're well. Someone that young can actually handle themselves. Yeah, uh, you you write these books that I think a lot of people use for direction in their own lives. So I'm curious, what is your relationship when you meet people that have read your books, or what do you want your relationship to be with people that read your books? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it it, it can make me really uncomfortable when people are like, "Oh, this changed my life," or "It saved me," or sure. "I was going to commit suicide," or you know, your book encouraged me to drop out of college, like things that I are like. Very like it's not that I don't want them on my conscious, but they're like it's like heavy shit, super heavy, you know. And so that can be like a little overwhelming. Um, What's also weird too is I think people forget uh, that like writers who are extroverts are like the exception, right? So it's like the reason I write books is that 
you know, it's like my parents didn't understand me, so it's like I'm gonna go in my room and yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna write something and then you'll understand, you know, like or like the kids at school they don't get me, so right. like I'm gonna write. It's a very isolating action. Yeah, and it it comes typically from some sort of social deficiency, right? Like like people who can just talk about what their feelings are are way better off, you know? Like like uh, you'll do interviews and people go like, "Tell me what your book is in a sentence." And you're like, "Dude, do you think I can do that? Because if I could, I would not have written this goddamn book." That's like so I would have spent 18 months doing right, it. Yeah. Right. Right, or 2 years. Like this they, this would have saved me like a lot of trouble, right. you know, if I could do that. So there's a weird like people uh, expect you to be a way that maybe you're sort of just not wired to That's be. what I'm fascinated with you is I'm so curious what people expect you to be like. Um, you, we live in this world. Like when I looked you up on podcasts, I just typed yeah. in Ryan Holiday to see which podcast you've been on. I mean, the titles that people go and listen to these days, yeah. the perfect man, like the life that you've yeah. dreamed of because everyone's looking for, you know what? I'm going to use my 30 minutes on the train to become a better person. And since you're one of the people giving the guidance, I can't imagine how they approach you. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, there's also um, – I think people expect a certain, like, intensity that's maybe not there. Like, Because the your writing is very yes. – it's time to have action now that you have – like, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, the, the, the book should be intense. And the book is, like, your – the book is your best, most concentrated, like, deep – sort of work product, right? And then when you're just like talking to me on the street, you're getting like me pulling whatever I can out of my ass. Right, do you know right, what I mean? Right. Like, like, and people do that, like they'll ask you a question and be like, I've literally not thought about this ever before. And you're expecting like a quality equal to what's in the book. It's yeah. like that sentence that you liked in the book, I wrote 62 times. Completely unrelated. I saw a post on Instagram yesterday of Ben Simmons of the Sixers eating wings on top of his Ferrari. And the caption was, Ben hanging out eating wings, didn't want to talk to fans though, kind of was rude. Yeah. And I'm like, so, but you just walked up to him being like, hey, Ben, what are you going to do? Like, leave yeah. the guy alone. Yeah. No, I mean, that'll happen like on Instagram. Like, I'll like, go for a run in a city, I'll post something, and everyone's like, oh, do you want to hang out? And it's like, that's the opposite of what I would like to do. I can not because I like because not because of you, but because like I'm an asocial weirdo who. Uh, well, no, you've you've also talked a lot about before. Like your time is super valuable. All of our times is super valuable, and there's a lot of things that you got to do. And on that trip, yeah, you know, stopping having lunch with someone you've never met before is probably not at the top of the list. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, and I get it. Like the the night, I think also the reason I became an author is that like of all the things, right? It's like athlete or movie star or radio star or like authors like at the bottom of the hierarchy and they get like recognized and bothered the least it it is the most introverted like how many people like you know my books have sold well i would say like 25 percent of the people who read the books know my name like they just know the title and they read it and then like what percentage of that 25% like flipped to the back and saw my picture and then remembered the picture? You know what I mean? Yeah, so but you also kind of hide your face in the photos. I, and some of them, but my, yeah. but my point is I like, and uh, the author is, if you're like, if you're like, I'd like to be a, a, you know, involved in the public, like a public person in some way. Author is both the least paid and the least uh, famous of all of them. So right. it's just something to think about. You, with stoicism, keeping yourself at that middle ground. How often do you fall out of that, and how do you get yourself back into that? 
Um, I mean, you try and you try to. I think one, and this is something I, I talked about with Sabin that I've, I've seen him talk about a lot, is this idea of like an inner scorecard versus an outer scorecard. So, what do you measure yourself by, mm. right? And it's really easy to measure yourself, especially at first. You're like, okay, I want to be a best-selling author, or I want to have a podcast that does a million downloads, or I want to be a YouTube star, or I want to be a millionaire, or whatever it is. And they, that having that super far stretch goal is really motivating at first. But then, like, what happens if you get it? Now are you, like, better than other people for getting it, right? And then, uh, so it, it, if, it, it, seems, it seems non-dangerous to attach, like, your an- identity or ambition to, like, some faraway distant thing in the future. But then if you're talented and you get it, now this is where ego becomes a problem, uh, or the the sort of uh, the, the non even keelness becomes a problem because now you have it, so that must say something about you. And then say things keep going well, and you're just on this ride where you're everything you do is better than the last thing. Does that mean you're better and better than other people? Um, and the answer is like, no, of course not. Because what happens when you fail? What happens if your book comes out on the day after nine eleven? Or what happens if you make something that's ahead of its time? Or what happens if you just get royally screwed, right? Does that mean you're a piece of shit? You know, like, uh, and and this is one lesson. I I talk to sports coaches about this all the time because I'm envious of it, which is like they win and lose so much. You know, like a a baseball team, you're going to lose like 60 plus games in a good year. Yeah. So like. And and some of those games are going to be great games. Like you're going to play great games and lose. We are very patient with baseball managers. Yes, and we and, learn something from this loss. Oh, that it was a good loss. You can actually say that. But I think that ultimately what they become is indifferent to winning and losing. Right? Like they have some higher. They have and they 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 know it when they see it. Like when the team is doing what they're supposed mm. to be doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like they become they they ultimately transcend winning and losing. And they have some higher metric that they're measuring. So, like, and Saban has talked about this where it's like they could be up by 30 points and he's like scowling on the sidelines. Meanwhile, they could lose a game by one point and he's going to be like, he's not going to be happy, but he's, he, he'll go into that locker room less upset than mm-hmm. on games that they've won because he measures himself by this standard of like how good I can be, right. not not what some random fan said was good or bad, a random commentator said was good or bad. Just for my own sanity, do you have days where you wake up and you go, you know, like just watching TV right now and eating some crap food, I could really go for that, or do you not even have those days? Yeah, of course. You, I mean, look. Thank you, Ryan. There, they really a, made me feel better. There's, there's a line like a, writing is, is, a writer is someone to whom writing does not come easily. So there are days like on this book where I was like, this is impossible. This is not going to work. This is the opposite of what I want to be doing. Like I should, I should quit. Sure. Or, or like it would be much more fun to uh, go hang out. Or it'd be much more fun. This, this is what Stephen Pressfield calls the resistance. It'd be much more fun to just get in a fight with, like, get in a fight with my wife. Or it'd be much more fun to, uh, you know, get into it with a customer service person, or get distracted with email, mm. or. You know, clean the house. Like the mind, when you're really pushing yourself and you're failing at it, will find an infinite amount of less painful but still shitty things to do yes. instead. And that's what that's what happens. Mine is cleaning, 100. percent Yeah, uh, my apartment is so clean. That's when you know that I haven't done shit and I've yeah. done a lot of thinking and nothing's coming out. And in some ways, that like 
So to you, cleaning, not cleaning, is probably harder than cleaning. Right. Like I found with running, like I, I run, and, and that's like sort of my thing. And I've, I've gotten to a point where like it actually requires more willpower for me to say like I don't feel good. It would be a bad idea to do this. Or, you know, I promised this time to my family right. or, you know, like I should – I've got this assignment I have to do. It actually requires more willpower for me in in the way that probably for a lot of these sort of work addict coaches, like them going to their kids' recital and not working is probably more an exercise of willpower than like pulling a 19-hour day. I'm going to go back to perennial solo for the last time. Uh, There were five nuggets that I put in my top five. Okay. So – one I love, this is from Ernest Hemingway. We have a lot of young people that listen to this that either want to get into this profession, whether it's football, whether it's coaching, whether it's broadcasting, or they're just kind of excited about sports and they want to enjoy life. And then these are all things that you guys can use. First one is from Ernest Hemingway. The first draft of anything is shit. Yes. And that is such a simple thing that I really don't think people understand. And they go, oh, it hit me. Yeah. Sit there with it. No, even even with my own books, uh, one of the hardest things to remember, like let's say I'm I'm six pages into writing this thing, I'm comparing it in my head to the first six pages of my last finished book, right? Because I've already forgotten what those first six, what the first first six pages were, and so you have to remember that um, first off, you're you shouldn't be comparing your writing to polished anything. No. But you can't even compare it to your own best stuff, right? So it's like you got to be comfortable sucking. Be- and, and, and once you get it on the page, you can make it better. But if you don't get it on the page, it won't get any better. To that, my second favorite nugget is that art can't be hurried. And I think a lot of us try. Sure. I mean, I would have liked this book to be out sooner. I probably would have gotten more attention. But it took it took more time than I thought. You know, it we we want things to be done fast. Because we think, I remember with my first book, it was like, if I don't get this out, like, no one will read it. And then it turned out I was like five years too early. <laughs> like, I had five, four years. Uh, I don't remember who wrote, who said this, but when people tell you something's wrong or doesn't work for them, they are almost always right. When they tell you exactly what's wrong or how to fix it, they are almost always wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Neil Gaiman. Yes, it is. Uh, and people will give you, especially as you become successful, people will give you all sorts of unsolicited feedback. And actually, this is a good story. I was just at the um, at the Pirates spring training, and they were saying one of the things that they're most worried about is sort of unsolicited feedback, right? So it's like some coach is walking down, he sees some some player doing something, and he goes oh, you know, don't do that, like swing the bat this way. And you could totally screw up some guys like, you know, a $100 million swing. And so you that, there, you have to have a relationship with the guy. It has to go through, not through channels, but it just don't, don't just go around fixing things because yes. you're probably going to break stuff, right? And so I think it's similar with feedback. Like people go like, oh, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. They're totally right when they say that they didn't like something. And so you should listen to that, and you should try to fix it. Yes. But don't listen to their solution because they're probably just pulling it out of their ass, and they, it's not a good solution. Uh, I love when you show how long something can take and how short something can take. So Mad Men went unsold for seven years. Yes. Like one of the, the perfect shows of this generation. Meanwhile, Rocky was written in three and a half days. Yes. And so there is no timeline to creating something great. 
There is no timeline, but I would say generally, on average, it's it takes way that, longer yes. than it, than you think. Rocky and, was definitely yeah. the outlier in that. Yeah, and but people like those, and they don't realize. First, it's like they don't see whatever went into Sylvester Stallone. Like, The Obstacles Away was my shortest book, but it was also, if you really think about it, the one that was the longest because it was the culmination of years and years of research that it was like who I am. Do you know yes. what I'm saying? And so, yeah, just don't, when people are like, oh, it took me two months, like, just don't listen because you have no idea. And then the last one is the one that me and my girlfriend use all of the time. Oh, great. I use it in job interviews. It's, I say it, it's my walk-off line. Okay. And it's the one from Austin Cleon. Yeah. You, you know it? Can't be the noun without doing the verb. It's the way I use it is lots of people want to be the noun without doing the verb. Yeah, of course. For me, it's the ultimate walk-off. You yeah. go, hey, listen. A lot of people want to be them. Don't, to me, that's like a great parent lesson, too. Of course, yeah. No, people want to have books. Writing a book <laughs> sucks. Yeah. Uh, and it's the same. Like, a lot of people want to be professional baseball players, soccer players, whatever right. it is. The, it's not a matter of how much you want it. It's what you actually do to get it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's the big. Sims's favorite quote with that is, lots of people want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Sure. Yeah, that's you know? very true. Uh, All right, let's talk about the reason you're here, conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the anatomy of intrigue. Uh, The the story on this, of course, is that Gawker was an absolute rag, and they came out and they they outed Peter Thiel as homosexual back in 2007. Uh, He kind of looked around and realized all these people are trying to sue Gawker right now. They keep hiding behind the First Amendment. Nothing's possible. I'm going to wait for their big screw-up, secretly, behind closed doors. Well, I think what happened is, so they, they out him. Yes. And he's, like, sort of, ta- you can do, like, you can do that? Like, why would why would someone do that? Like, right. You know, he's like, I'm a totally private, normal person. Why would, why is this anyone's business? Like, and it turns out it's not illegal, right? There's been some lawsuits, and it's harder, like, let's say 20 years ago, when we were a much less open society, maybe your secret sexuality mm. could be said to have damaged your career prospects. But it, it's it's not illegal. But it is very cruel. Right. And it is a not cool thing to do to someone. And so I think he was sort of appalled by this. It was his rude introduction into how Gawker worked. And then it was just sort of this thing in the back of his mind. He, like, sort of followed them. They wrote about him a more, uh, uh, some more. They wrote about his friends. He sort of watched this wow. sort of runaway train. And Peter Thiel is this, like, billionaire investor in Facebook and PayPal, I think it was. He was and... the founder of PayPal. He put the first $500,000 into Facebook. Man. Yeah. So he did all right. Yeah, yeah. He, so. turned, he turned about $500,000 into a billion dollars. And then he happened to start another company called Palantir. Which is worth, you know, conservatively twenty twenty five billion dollars, wow. which he's also the majority shareholder of. So he created these multi billion dollar companies, basically an unlimited fortune. At this and this point. little online, like not little, I yeah. mean, it became a three hundred million dollar company with three hundred employees, was just throwing rocks at the giant, which I think was sort of their mo back in the day. And yet he also really wasn't a giant, right? At that time in two thousand seven, right. Facebook is five years away from going public. So, like, he's just this guy. Gotcha. I mean, he's a, a powerful guy. He's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but... He's not the Peter Till we see today. He's not on the Forbes list. Like, no. nobody knows who this guy is. And so, uh, he he it was this rude awakening, and then he said, someone should do something about this. 
And then he kind of waited and hoped someone would do something about it. And eventually he sits down. There's this meeting I talk about in the book. He meets this 26-year-old kid in Berlin, and they're sort of talking about this. And the kid's like, you should do something about it. And he says, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And um, the kid looks him in the eye. This is incredible. Like, the ball's on this kid. This kid looks him in the eye and goes, Peter, if, if everyone said that, what would the world look like? And I don't think there was a more calculated effect, a calculatedly effective line you could say to someone like Peter. Right. And it, at, at that meeting, he commits to spending about 10. He was like, look, here's $10 million. Uh, let's see what we can do. Man, I think what's so funny for me is when I think about the characters in this, and I think about the dichotomy between, I don't even know if they're protagonists, they're kind of, they're both. Yeah. Hulk Hogan and Peter Thiel yeah. are just so diametrically opposed. And I think that's what's so funny. It's Hulk Hogan, it's Hulkamania. It was incredible. After this, it all happened because it was all done by the time. Uh, there was this sort of victory dinner at Thiel's house that I was invited to. And, and we sat down at this dinner and it was the first time – so so basically for people who don't know, uh, Hulk Hogan uh, – Gawker runs a sex tape of Hulk Hogan. Peter Thiel secretly backs his lawsuit, which ends in a $140 million judgment against Gawker. And no one knew that the two were connected until months later. Uh, it, it took – the lawsuit was filed in 2012. The verdict's in 2016. Mm. And Thiel isn't revealed until late 2016. But anyways – I saw them meet for the first time. That's what I was going to ask you is what is their re- – okay, so I'm yeah. going to shut the fuck up. No, I saw them meet for the first time. And it was obviously – you know, Teal is this sort of private, deep thinker, somewhat socially awkward, reserved. And, you know, Hogan is a celebrity, a showman. He, walked, yes. he brought – I'm forgetting the name of his manager, you know, his, his wrestling man – his fake wrestling manager. Stop. Yeah. So he was there. Uh, and so I see them meet for the first time and, and – uh, Hogan sort of immediately goes into a fake wrestling pose, and they pose for like photos together. It was just incredible. Uh, just, but but the idea that they pulled off this conspiracy, a real together, conspiracy, not a, real, a theory, right. no, a real to conspiracy. conspire to take down something, and yet they'd never been in the same room together. And and in fact, that's a true conspiracy. In fact, Hogan did not know who was backing him. He just knew that an anonymous. He didn't know business, at all. No, he didn't know. How was? The money was just coming in? There was a middleman. Uh, and the, uh, the, the story, is this Mr. A? This is Mr. A. Okay. The sto- this is who calls Peter out at that meeting. But the story was that a, a, a consortium of rich businessmen were funding it. So, so the, the lie was that it was this group of businessmen. Right. And then people were like, oh, okay, well, whatever. We'll, we'll just take the money and we'll see what happens. And I'm curious. You worked 18 months on this. And I saw you're the only one to interview Peter Thiel on this at all. Yeah. And I'm seeing reporters taking your information yeah. and turning it into their work. And what's interesting is, I asked you this before, so much of your work has been about mindset. Yeah. And this is about facts. And sure. I feel like now in this world, people just take facts. What has it been like to just see people take the work that you've been doing? It's weird. I mean, first off, you have to follow your own advice. Like that's something that's not uh, not in your control. You got to <laughs> you got to take it. Um, but I think the journalists that are doing that are missing the point, right? Just as they missed the entire. It's funny to hear the judgment of these reporters who were covering this case in real time and completely missing what was happening as it was happening. Then tell me things about you know the, the case or whatever. But. Um, the facts don't really matter. I mean, they right. matter, but like the story is what matters. And in a hundred years, the story is what will matter. No one will care. Is this a perennial story? 
I think so. It's a it's an epic story of revenge. I mean, the the Count of Monte Cristo is like almost two hundred years old, and it's been adapted hundreds of times. For sure. Um, and, and, and Hamlet is a story of revenge. For sure. And, and you know, five hundred plus years. So they 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 were obsessed journalistically with facts. Um, you know, was it this date or that date? Was it this amount or that amount? Or or should this be happening or shouldn't it be happening? And ultimately, the reason that the public is so obsessed with what happened is because of the epic story, the, the idea that this bully stood up to that bully and then they beat each other silly, basically, and then right. one emerged as the as – the, just barely standing victor to me that's so so okay it pisses me off that you stole yeah. my scoop uh as a reporter at buzzfeed uh i i think clearly did um but at the end of the day like uh are people gonna be reading this article in six months or right. they're gonna be reading the book it's I, think it's I think it's something that i think about in meetings all the time is about long lasting and staying true because look man the universe always comes back it's just it's undefeated i've never yeah. seen anyone beat it um, you had a, a comment, or you, I guess, had an article go up on TechCrunch today, but I, I noticed that you don't think this is going to be a one-time thing because of the personalities from a certain area. You wrote that you wrote about Teal's arc from technology investor to Strauss and power broker for that same reason. I think we need a wake-up call about how this all works. What kind of forces have been unleashed by the gold rush of California, Silicon Valley? Yeah. Are you seeing waves right now? Are you seeing something that other people haven't seen yet? I mean, I don't know if I'm seeing something that other people haven't seen, but I think the idea that these people amassed enormous fortunes or that someone like Mark Zuckerberg controls the greatest network of humans on the force on the face of the earth and the history of the earth and that he's just going to let it go where it's going to go is absurd, right? Like right. power is assembled so it can be used. And I think I think one of the elements of Peter's story that people missed is, is that okay, Hey, do you watch Billions? Yes. So the the best line in Billions, maybe one of the best lines in the history of television, is he goes, you know, uh, what's the point of having fuck you money if you never say fuck you? For sure. And and I th- it, the idea that Peter had climbed, you know, had, had beaten all these incredible odds, had founded not just one billion dollar company, but then another one, and then th- that these people were going to come and just treat him like he was you know, trash or that they were going to treat him like that little kid on the playground and then he wasn't going to do anything about it and that actions don't have consequences. I think that's a deep underlying theme of the story that basically everyone in journalism missed. It's interesting. And the last one, I think uh, you wrote a number of articles. I think that's the reason you said that Peter kind of trusted you about what Gawker really was and you were kind of okay with their downfall as well. Um, what did they represent to you? Well, no, it's interesting. Like, I, I did write a lot about their downfall early on, and I, I was, I, weirdly, I was much more for it before I wrote the book. Like, I would say talking to them and studying it and working it on it. It became human. It became human and became real, and you can't help but – you create a $300 million company. You're supporting a lot of families. And, yeah. The next thing you know, you're renting out your house on Airbnb to cover your mortgage, which is right. what happened. And then if, you, if you're not touched by that, there's something wrong with you. So there was an element of that. But Gawker was a site that started punching up, and then it became big, and then it was just punching, and then it 
it became about punching down, right? Um, There's a lot of that still going on. Of course, no, people don't. Journalists have to realize that they have power. That the ability to speak and spread messages to the public, and that how incredibly difficult it is. Like, you know, the, the you could write a story tomorrow, and uh, and and the most the biggest coach in in the NBA is powerless to stop you from doing it. You know what I mean? You can say sure. you can have any opinion about anything that has a real impact on what these people have also worked incredibly hard. So media is power. And I think journalists are used to being like the low man on the totem pole that sometimes they forget that, in fact, they have an extraordinary amount of power and that with that power comes some responsibility. You're right. I think about sports journalism. I think about all of the media people being put into one room and getting yeah. fe- fed like less than food. Sure. And, you know, you'll come in when we want you to come in. and it's yeah. Or I could just sit at home and write whatever I want right now. And and they're scared of – like you could – you things that the media creates, narratives that are true or untrue, have real consequences for these people, for these – you know uh, – you know, ask Sam Hinkie uh, about the power of the media. Like this dude was right. Yes. Like he turns Philly around, but uh, that's my guy. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't uh, pay enough respect to the media, and ultimately they sort of drove him out of town. In the long run, you were talking about Teal, and we're talking about Hinkie. These are yeah. true contrarians in very you know, places that have been very stagnant in yeah. the long game. Yeah. Contrarians are typically viewed to be the right. Like they're they're it's successful in the long run. They might be post like after they die. Yeah, but well, no, it's it's funny. So Teal Teal backs Trump in the election, and Jeff Bezos says of him, you know, the thing about contrarians is that they're normally wrong. They're almost always wrong. And I remember the day after uh, the election, I, I emailed Teal and I said, um, you know, what do, what do you think of Bezos's comment now? And he said, he's right. Uh, the contrarians usually are wrong, but when they're right, they're really, really right. Mm. And so, you know, he put a hundred million or he put a million dollars into Trump's campaign and then was basically leading the transition. You know, what would a million dollars in Hillary's campaign have gotten you? Nothing. Like a T-shirt, yeah. you know? And so, so Teal, Teal puts $500,000 into Facebook, it becomes a billion dollars because nobody else thought it was worth putting money into, right? right? And so he seeks out these opportunities for extraordinary gains. You know, people thought, okay, you should, you know, write a sternly worded letter to Gawker or, you know, you yeah. should you should do this or you should play this game and he was like, no, I'm going to find a different way. Right. And he was the, that's why he's the only one that did what happened. That's look, that's one I I can't remember who it was in perennial seller but said uh only is better than best, you know, to not go down the same road that everyone's going down but to pave your own road pretty much. Pete Carroll said that to me and he got it from the Grateful Dead. Stop. Yeah. What is Pete Carroll like? Uh is he chomping on gum all the time or is that just when he's coaching? Uh I don't I don't remember the gum thing but I I <laughs> we you the idea that he's the oldest coach in football is the most absurd he's, and immediately he's a yeah. child right he's just a cop and he's yelling at people and he's smacking people in the butt and he's the oldest guy and he yeah. he doesn't even look the oldest like nothing about him no, says no, old. He, like if you told me he was like the youngest i might be like well that doesn't sound right but like he's obviously in the middle somewhere right, right. and how what did he say when you got there uh, we, we were just talking, and, and he was saying that that was one of the pieces of advice that he'd, he'd gotten from the Grateful Dead. Is you're not trying to be the best or sell the most. You're trying to be the only one doing what you're doing. And that, ironically, if, if you want the perfect uh, bookend for this, yeah. Teal's line is that competition is for losers. 
you know, he says that you should seek out a monopoly that you want to, you find what everyone else is doing and then you do the opposite of that because mm. that's where not only might you find success, if you do find success, you're going to own all of it and you don't have to share it with anyone. That's what they say about Uber. You yeah. know, everyone said, who's going to want to get into a stranger's car? And then Travis was like, I think they might. So I'm going to start this. And and when he was right, they had an enormous monopoly or they only have really one real competitor. And that's... Do you That's take this mindset saying. when you're writing books too? Do you go where is the white space right now, or how do you start? I would say that's at the absolute core of what I'm doing. You know, many obviously many books have been written about stoicism, but none illustrated it in stories, and none took modern stories that illustrated it. I think with this book, there were I know there were a bunch of journalists trying to write the same book around the same time, and I think I beat them to the punch. But I also think Hell I, yeah. I also guys. think <laughs> I also think I wrote. Uh, a book that they couldn't have written, right? Just in case they did come out with a book at the same time. Right. And, and they I think, wouldn't have that much with Peter and, and all those different, and I, then Denton and all those guys. I mean, just at the most basic level, when I was thinking about titles, you know, I searched on Amazon for conspiracy and there was, there'd never been a book titled just conspiracy. So I was like, what oh, part of the process that. do you start doing the title? Very end? Not at the very end. In, in this case, it was maybe like a third of the way through. I started thinking about because the process was so compressed. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, The Obstacle is the Way, the title was, like, turning up obstacles upside down or something for, like, <laughs> the first, you know, like, t- almost until the end. If you could have dinner with any living person that you haven't already met. Uh, I would love to meet Obama. I, th- I think Obama would be fantastic to meet. Do you let – I mean, I don't even know. I guess when you sit down with Obama, you kind of go wherever he wants to go, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'd be I, – I'd be like, I'd talk about whatever you want. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then um, – for me, Obstacles the Way, it's not a football book, but it's celebrated by the world. Perennial Seller is kind of for writers, but I was able to glean a ton of information, even though it wasn't. I'm not in that perfect demographic. I think it's for anyone who makes anything. And that's why I think you have these universal truths. And that's why conspiracy falls in that, too, because it's this is a, a universal story. For all the young people that listen to us, what are some universal truths whether they're in college or they're coming out of college, that they can use for their mindset to then do action afterwards. So first off, you you know way less than you think you do. And if you accept that, then you then you can then go on a journey where you learn a lot more. Um, I, I, so, so, you know, there's a line from Epictetus. He says, uh, it's impossible to learn that which you think you already know. So the, the admission of ignorance is like an incredible power. Um, I would say... Uh, that uh, patience is probably the the greatest virtue. Um, I would say, don't be crazy. Like like when I'm hiring people, I bet you're the same way. You're the main thing that you want to leave. Like that that room that the you know sports are different, right? Yeah. But like in the real world, you're like, do I want to be around this person? Like, is this person gonna absolutely mess up my life or make right. my life easier or better? Right. Right. Only only scouts and coaches are like, this dude's insane. He's got the right amount of crazy. Yeah, he's insane, but look at his jump shot. Like, yeah. uh, sports can accommodate crazy people. Sure. The real world cannot. So I, I think just having your personal shit together and not being an insane – like, the amount of 5,000-word emails I get from people that are like, at the end, it's like, will you hire me? It's like, I won't even read this email. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> You're going to come murder me. Who uh, thought this was a good idea? Yeah, right. So, So just getting your shit together. And then I would say – seeking out some model or expert like 
the Stoics talk about, they say, choose yourself a Cato. Cato's like the sort of towering Stoic example, but they're like, who's the guy where, look, ideally, yes, they're your mentor and you ask them for advice, but mostly you're like, okay, I got this difficult decision. What would David do in this situation, Mm -hmm. right? Or what would Adam do in this situation? You know, like, and going, he would not do this or he would do that or... um, you know, he he would he would be judging me. Re- he would be judging me really hard if I said yes to this. Sure, and that sort of guy, and and pick someone like historically great and use that as like yeah, it doesn't a, have to be someone from the neighborhood. Like it could yeah, be yeah. anybody. Yeah, the Stoics say uh, you don't choose your parents, but you choose whose children you want to be. Right. So it's like you don't choose your mom and dad, but you choose like what lineage you're gonna follow in that's always something big that you always go through is it's it's bigger than you it's it's a legacy thing and when you think that there's so much on the line you will act differently than if you have no care in the world yeah sure and and sometimes you want to have no care in the world but other times you, you got to take it really really seriously. yeah and if you're young enjoy being young but at the same time you no, know i would say have a code i would say that the yeah the biggest advice i'd give myself at like 20 would be like dude relax like this does not matter at all. I know. You are taking this way too seriously. And that goes to the crazy thing. It's like you are whipping yourself about this and literally no one cares. Like they don't even know you exist. Like relax. Uh, because you have looked at all these great minds and leaders and you see how we remember certain people, yeah. who are the people in today's society that you go, they will last the test of time? Who are some perennial leaders that we have right now that's a that's a tough question i would have i try to pick historical figures for precisely this reason (laughs) uh because because uh their legacy has been sorted out a little bit right um so i don't i don't know i mean i i think and and i'm actually you know i would say closer to right than left in terms of my political beliefs but i think obama will be one of one of those people if only for his temperament, like the I, I think we're especially seeing now the importance of of temperament and and sort of rational thinking and the ability to calm things down and slow things down. Maybe he got that probably a combination of sports and being from Hawaii for him. Yeah. So I think that that's one of them. I mean, on on the sports front, just just the, I mean, so many of the, we're in a weird spot sports wise where it's like Tom Brady's still playing and and like. We haven't that that generation's not. I mean, Kobe only recently retired. Yeah. We're like still in I feel a like weird. Belichick will be one of those people. I think so. Um, it's so funny because I look at at Belichick and I I see all the Stoic philosophies in him. Yeah, and I, it's like it's like incidental Stoicism. Where yeah, I like, don't think he's reading a lot no. of ancient philosophy. He's, he's just watching film. And that's just. Do you get what is your relationship when you see those people who just naturally they haven't had to read all the books and and kind of study all this text? Well, I'm super. are. I'm super envious of that because like it didn't occur to me naturally. Right. And so, and it, it hit you college reading yeah. meditations. Uh-huh. So, what was Ryan Holiday like before you read meditations? I mean, I think I had a natural predilection to it. I mean, it's not like I don't think it was telling me anything I didn't know, but it was like telling it to me in a way it was like, oh yeah, I agree with that. Like, right, that's my shit right I there. I align with that. Yeah, yeah um, in a way that you know, like religion never had for me, or you know, in any any other sort of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I I do. I do tend to think that probably the most stoic people in history had no idea that's what they were doing. That's just naturally who they are. And the stoics would say, like, it doesn't really matter. Your behavior is what matters. And so we can we can sort and we can learn from really bad people who had like a couple good traits. I have told young people my whole life, 
you will learn more from a bad boss than a good boss because you won't realize all the work that a good boss is doing. But the sloppy boss that treats people poorly, you're going to leave that job ready to lead yeah, because you've seen all the things not to do. Yeah, yeah. And you you saw the costs. Like, you know, people are like, oh, don't do this, don't do that. But you haven't understood why. Right. Uh, so I went through and uh, I, I have a Daily Stoic, which okay. is something you have, which is a daily, uh, would you say, affirmations? Yeah, the the genre is devotional, but the idea is that you would just read one page of this philosophy every day, and it's a way to sort of kick things off. And hey, guys, I do that. So, um, do you t- do the journal? I don't do the journal. Did I give you the journal? Oh, let me give you the journal. Oh yeah, free shit. I I do my I do my. The only own, reason I invited you here is for free shit. I, I do my own journal. So like I, I made a journal which I then do every day. I think so. My drug, yeah. if you were to just put it right in my vein, is a journal store. Like if I go to mm. Moleskin or Moleskine, yeah. however you say, I'm I'm buying way too much shit because they all promise me finally, Adam, yeah. organization. Right. It's gonna happen. But every time I go, I don't like this box. I don't yeah. need this over here. I, I think you'll like this. You made your own. I did. Uh, today's passage in Daily Stoic was cultivating indifference where others grow passion. Mm-hmm. So if you could share kind of with, with everybody the main thought behind that. So I don't read my own book every day. I feel like that Which would be weird. Crazy. But but the, the Stoic, you know, this word indifference, we tend to think. Super uh, negative. Super negative. Yeah. The Stoics are, are saying, actually, if you're strong. You don't care what happens because you're good either way, right? So, like, uh, it's Seneca- a great thing for fans. Yeah, Eagles fans, you're good. Who cares if the Giants fans are coming at you? So, so Seneca would say, like, look, a Stoic would prefer to be tall than short, but they're fine either way. You right? said this, I think, was it Seneca too, who had money, and it says, I, I'd be fine, rich or poor. Yes, but I'd prefer to be rich. Money is better. Yes, right. But they're indifferent as to sort of how it happens, right? So, yeah, what money is good, you know, uh, successful, well known, not well known. Th- these things, obviously, we, we, it's better to have those things. But the, the point is, each one has their own trials, and your this the Stoke is strong enough and sort of prepared for either way. And so, yeah, a lot of people get very, I want to be this, I want to be that, I have to be this. Well, what happens if, if, you know, you had to be an NFL player, you get drafted, and then you get in a car accident, your career ends like that. Right. Is your life over, you know? Uh, you quit and right there. Um, and so the, the Stoics are just saying, like, look, so much of what happens is out of, outside of our control. So if you can cultivate a little bit of indifference, um, like, look, I want this book to do super well. Sure. But I'm already moved on to the next thing in my head. So if it does great, fantastic. If it's a little ahead of its time or it's not appreciated right away, I'm I'm too busy to think about yeah, that. Yeah, ha- I, I can't remember where I saw it before, but you said if you're going to get – if you're going to take credit for the luck, then you also need to take credit for the bad luck. Yeah, there's a Chris Rock line where, you know, a comedian will be like, you know, the uh, – that was an amazing crowd. And he's like, or that was a bad crowd. It's like, but when it's an ama- when you kill, are you like, oh, was it me? It's a good crowd. It's the crowd was just you never really do good. that. No, yeah, you never do that. Uh, I looked up the passage, though, that was on your birthday because I was oh. curious to see if it was written any differently. And it was no shame in needing help. And it was a Marcus Aurelius meditation. So my first thought was he definitely made this one special. That was the book that kind of changed him. Am I, did you pick that passage for yourself at all? I don't think so. I mean, I re, that's one of my favorite passages. He's yeah. saying, 
you know, you're like a soldier storming a wall. If you have to ask your comrade for help, that the Stoics believed in strong individuality, but then also part being part of this community. The the way Daily Stoic was written is we wrote like 366 meditations, and then we organized them into themes after. So gotcha. there there wasn't like for June 16th. Here's what I'm All the right. only one. The only one you did write. If you need help, comrade, just ask. And I was like, I wonder if that's for himself. I mean, I definitely need that. I don't think there's anything in those books that isn't primarily directed at myself, gotcha. first and foremost. Yeah. But I don't think it has anything to do with my birthday. And then what were you saying, though, that may have been actually done on purpose? Well, the only day that I remember specifically doing on purpose, we do an email that goes out every day. And those, I pick dates all the time. Right. But the, the the April 15th one, it was like a tax day one. I, re- I remember an argument with a publisher going, <laughs> but in you know Germany, they have a different tax day. But that, that's the only one I specifically remember. Um, all right. So you have Conspiracy. It's available now. You can go on Amazon or you can support a local bookstore like Strand and actually sure. get out there and get it. Uh, your website is ryanholiday.net. Yes. What are the other things that people need to know to take all of this in? Where else, do, where else should they go? Instagram? Ryan, yeah, Holiday, Ryan Holiday, Twitter at Ryan Holiday. I think I think if you're if you're interested in the stoicism stuff, the email we do for the Daily Stoic, which is just dailystoic.com, and you sign up, and it's every day, and it's probably the biggest community of people who are interested in this thing since ancient Rome. Uh, That's awesome. Which is pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we actually just launched the Sims and Lefko newsletter email from the book. Um, it's definitely part of the reason I there we go. get it. Uh, so. Check that out. We're going to have extra stuff, videos, pictures. I'm going to write for it, too, which is interesting because I am one of those people that could just talk for two hours. And writing for me is like sitting down and, oh, I'm going to hit backspace. That's why you should do it. It's harder. It is harder. Um, uh, I want to ask you like a million fucking questions, but we got to wrap up. Um, Overall, I won the Super Bowl. I didn't okay. win the Super Bowl. The Eagles won the Super Bowl. Sure. And I have learned from reading you that we should always remain an even keel. And yeah. it was a very interesting moment for me because here I am at the peak of my excitement and just pure joy. And at the same time, I'm going, how does one balance that? Like, I was wondering when you have a child, like, how did you stay even keel for that? Well, I mean, just not, you know, eating horse feces is like even keel for an Eagles fan. You didn't throw a battery at anyone. You didn't climb any telephone poles. D- Gabe, do you see this? That, even a, even when it's Ryan Holiday, I'm getting the battery that, shit. That's a, that's a huge win, right? We did so, eat horse shit. Yeah. We didn't start that trend, though. Right. Yeah, what a trend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think uh, what this the idea is that even when things are killing it, just reminding yourself that, like, you don't. You don't need it to be this way. Do you know what I mean? That you'd be I fine could be that way. way anyway. Yeah. Mm. Right. It's good. That that you'd be fine if they lost, and you'd be fine if they won twenty more times in a row. Uh, I I just know this. We have had Rich Cohen on this podcast before. He is writing right on the top of conspiracy. Conspiracy, brilliant and terrifying. Rich Cohen is my favorite author. Like just I would terms say mine like too. books and. He is not going to throw his. This is, I can already tell from the reaction. I saw a review of it in the New York Times, and they were like taking shots at you, it seemed like. They're like, know who Ryan Holiday is. But then they were like, but we have to admit, it's an absolute page turner. This could, and I, I think it absolutely will, be one of the pinnacle stories of our time in terms of this story conspiracy, these characters, 
Get out there, check it out, support a friend of the podcast, and Ryan Holiday has become a friend of ours. Ryan, I appreciate your Thank energy. You. I appreciate your time. You are the man. Thank you, dude. Yeah. Uh, as always, hit us up on social, at Sims and Lefko. Uh, hit us up on Instagram or Twitter, and take a look for that newsletter. We've already got like a few hundred people subscribed to it. I wrote something about hand size for the combine because nothing shows the true measure of a man than the size of his hand. Love you guys very much for Ryan Holiday, for Sims, Fender Katave, good evening, and I am the L E F K O E man. We will holler at you soon. Talk to you later.